Ruth 4. Now Boaz went up to the gate and sat down there, and behold, the close relative of whom Boaz spoke was passing by. So he said, Turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. He took ten men of the elders of the city and said, Sit down here. So they sat down. Then he said to the closest relative, Naomi, who has come back from the land of Moab, has to sell a piece of, of land which belonged to our brother Emelech. <clears throat> so I thought to inform you, saying, Buy it before those who are sitting here and before the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one but you to redeem it. And I am after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, On the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you must also acquire Ruth the Mobitus, the widow of the deceased, in order to raise up the name of the deceased on his inheritance. The closest relative said, I cannot redeem it for myself, because I would jeopardize my own inheritance. Redeem it for yourself. You may have the right of my redemption, for I cannot redeem it. Now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning the redemption and the exchange of the land to confirm any matter. A man removed his sandal and gave it to another, and this was the manner of attest attestation in Israel. So the closest relative said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, and he removed his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses today that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Emelech and all that belonged to Chilion and Malon. Moreover, I have acquired Ruth the Mobitus, the widow of Malon, to be my wife in order to raise up the name of the deceased on his inheritance, so that the name of the deceased will not be cut off from his brothers or from the court of his birthplace. You are my witnesses today. All the people who were in the court and the elders said, we are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah, both of whom built the house of Israel, and may you achieve wealth in Epiphrath and become famous in Bethlehem. Moreover, may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore Judah, through the offspring which the Lord will give you by, his, by this young woman. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife, and he went into her. And the Lord enabled her to conceive, and she gave birth to a son. Then the woman said to Naomi, Blessed is the Lord, who has not left you without a redeemer. Today you may, you may his name become famous in Israel. May he also be you, a restorer of life and a sustainer of your old age. For your daughter-in-law, who loves you and is better to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child, laid him in her lap, and became his nurse. The neighbor woman gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. So they named him Obed. He is the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now these are the generations of Perez. To Perez was born Hezron, and to Hezron was born Ram, and to Ram was born Aminadab, and to Aminadab was born Nashon, and to Nashon Salmon, and to Salmon was born Boaz, and to Boaz Obed, and to Obed was born Jesse, and to Jesse David. This is the word of the Lord. The article begins, 
this way. The best movie twist endings often completely change the dynamic of the film. From its characters, to its themes, to the narrative as a whole. When done right, a twist at the end of a movie should genuinely surprise your audience, as well as completely shift the perception we have on all parts of the film, allowing us to see it in a totally different way. The ending to a film is the lasting impression that the audience will walk away with. If done right, a movie twist ending can leave your audience with their jaw on the floor. While I don't believe that the author of this article, industrialscripts.com, had the book of Ruth in mind, when he was writing, the description that he gives perfectly sums up the last chapter of this most stunning book. What unfolds in chapter four of Ruth has the potential not only to leave our jaws on the floor, but to expand our knowledge of God and our love for God. While we've had a few weeks to consider the scope of this book, the progression of it, the purpose of it, we are in some ways prepared to have our breaths taken away as we approach the end. But for the original reader, they wouldn't have had that luxury. For the audience hearing this for the first time, they would have been completely caught off guard by what unfolds in Ruth chapter 4. And as we've said over the last few weeks, the human story is unfolding, and it's unfolding between Naomi and Boaz and Ruth, and that human story that we see is compelling, it's moving, it's riveting, but that hidden story, which is finally revealed in chapter 4, it not only adds a touch of color to the human story, but a dazzling array of vibrant colors to the showcase of God's glorious purpose, particularly his glorious purposes in the midst of difficult circumstances. This is what we've seen thus far in the book of Ruth. We've seen famine. We've looked at unwise relocation. We've seen sudden death of a husband We've seen 10 years of infertility. We've seen unexpected loss of two grown sons. We've seen losing a daughter-in-law. We've seen a, humili a humiliating relocation back home and yet only to show up empty-handed. We've seen widowhood. We've seen uncertainty and insecurity and fear about the future. We've seen desperate ideas. We've seen bitterness. We've seen relational obstacles. And all of this is unfolding at a time during the period of the judges. Said another way, at a time in which everyone was doing right in their own eyes. No matter which perspective you looked from, everywhere you looked, the situation seemed bleak. 
at a national level, at a local level, and at a personal level. And yet the book of Ruth has been written to remind us that amidst it all, God is still at work. He doesn't take days off. He is still designing and orchestrating and using even the most difficult of circumstances and heartbreak to bring about his good purposes. And that's what Ruth gives us a glimpse into, those hidden purposes and the hidden work of God. And so when walking together on a dusty road between Moab and Bethlehem, two brokenhearted and destitute widows made their way into what they thought was a hopeless and bleak future. Naomi, the mother-in-law, viewed the Almighty as having dealt very bitterly with her, and Ruth, the daughter-in-law, All she had was a fervent loyalty and a fierce love to her embittered mother-in-law. Ruth and Naomi could not imagine what you and I have just heard read this morning. And it made all the difference in their lives. And if you're here this morning and you feel that God has dealt very bitterly with you and you have questions and your heart aches, Because every way that you look, the future seems bleak. Listen closely to Ruth chapter 4. If like Naomi, you are wondering and you are asking, God, where are you at as I wait? Where are you at as I suffer? Where are you at as I'm lonely? Where are you at as I struggle? what we are about to walk through this morning has the potential to make all of the difference in your life as well. For that to happen, we need something greater than a good sermon delivered. We need the Holy Spirit of God himself to give us eyes to see and ears to hear. And so would you pray with me as we open Ruth chapter 4. Holy God, would you allow us to behold wondrous things in your word? Would you convince us today of your love for us? Would you convince us today that you have not stopped working all things out for the good of those who loved you, who are called according to your purposes? God, meet with us, we pray. Help us, we pray. Comfort us, we pray. Reassure us, we pray. Grow us so that we may respond rightly to the good God who is over all and who is in all. Would you allow the sermon that is heard to be far more effective than what is preached. And we pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. If you've not opened your Bibles to Ruth chapter 4, I would invite you to do so. Ruth chapter 4. If, you will, if you'll remember how we ended Ruth chapter 3. Ruth chapter 3 left us in a state of suspense. Ruth had followed through with Naomi's risky plan and she asked Boaz to marry her. 
Mercifully, Boaz accepts her request to protect and to provide for her. And even before Ruth could cry tears of joy, Boaz, being a man of integrity, says, I will, but there is another who is closer in line than I. There's another who deserves this more than me. And at that moment, following the human story, our hopes are dashed and we think, what? No, we've grown to love Boaz. There can't be another that's going to work for Ruth. If that's what we, you and I felt, imagine what Ruth must have felt. From the height of elation to the depths of disappointment and, Booth, uh, and Booth, Boaz says, that he will settle the matter the next day. And chapter four is that next day. If chapter two highlighted the initiative of Ruth, if chapter three highlighted the initiative of Naomi, here in chapter four, we see highlighted the initiative of Boaz. And so listen to Ruth chapter four, beginning in verse one. Now Boaz went up to the gate and sat down there, and behold, the close relative of whom Boaz spoke was passing by. So he said, turn aside, friend, sit down here, and he he turned aside, and he sat down. All right, the gate of the city. The gate of the city served as sort of the combined courthouse and town square and social gathering spot. If official business was going to be done, in order for it to be legitimate official business, it had to be done at the gate in the presence of the elders and other witnesses. Boaz goes to the gate because he is prepared to settle the matter of who is it that's going to redeem Ruth and Naomi. And while he's sitting there, the text tells us, and behold, the close relative of whom Boaz spoke was passing by. Again, the author is trying to allow us to see, much like he did in Ruth chapter 2, verse 3, it just so happened, right? He was in conversation the night before with Ruth saying, I have to go and I have to find the closer kinsman. The next morning, he goes to the gate, he sits down, and behold, look who walks by, the closer kinsman. Say it ain't so. And it just so happened that after Boaz sat down, the guy he needs to see passes by. Again, the story is just overflowing with God's faithful providences that are unfolding. In the best of times and in the worst of times, God is at work. And so Boaz sits with this closer kinsman redeemer, Once he sits with him, verse 2, he took 10 men of the elders of the city and he said, sit down here. So they sat down. And so he gathers then 10 elders to serve as witnesses, as to uh, authoritative witnesses as to the matter that will be decided on this day. And Boaz then spells out the matter that he's seeking to decide on this day in verses three and four. Listen again. Then he said to the closest relative, Naomi, who has come back from the land of Moab, has to sell the piece of land which belonged to our brother Elimelech. 
So I thought to inform you, saying, buy it before those who are sitting here and before the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one but you to redeem it, and I am after you. And he said, I will redeem it. No. Boaz informs this kinsman that there, uh, Naomi is selling a piece of land because there is no male to inherit the land to pass it down to. There's no male to help tend the land. Naomi is advanced in age. She and Ruth are in need of money to survive. And so she has to sell this piece of land that has been in the family. And if this redeemer will buy this piece of land, it will remain in the family. If you have burning questions about what a kinsman redeemer is, I would encourage you to go back, listen to any of the previous three sermons, or to read Leviticus chapter 25, read Deuteronomy chapter 25. You begin to see some of what the responsibilities were to those who were next of kin. And against all hopes... (laughs) this unnamed kinsman redeemer says, yes, he will redeem. And while we should be happy that God has provided a redeemer for Ruth and Naomi, we groan at this news. And it's not that we don't like this guy. We don't even know this guy. But we love Boaz. He's godly. He's generous. He has been faithful. Let's just close the book and let's just be done. If this man gets to redeem this situation, and while we may be tempted to close the book and just be done, Boaz is not. Look at what happens in verses 5 and 6. Then Boaz said, On the day that you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you must also acquire Ruth the Moabitess, the widow of the deceased, in order to raise up the name of the deceased On his inheritance. The closest relative said, I cannot redeem it for myself because I would jeopardize my own inheritance. Redeem it for yourself. You may have the right of redemption, for I cannot redeem it. This kinsman redeemer is told what's at stake in this redemption. It's not merely the land, that would have helped his portfolio. But it's also the protection and the provision of Ruth, the Moabitess. And this man considers and he says, I cannot redeem this. Taking on this responsibility would have meant caring for Naomi. It would have meant uh, meant marrying Ruth, which would have brought about more children, which would have affected the inheritance of his current children. And again, all throughout the Old Testament, we see these kind of two things, dominion, a land, and dynasty, a, a lineage, a people. Dominion and dynasty, dominion and dynasty. And the Redeemer was to provide for both. Naomi was beyond childbearing years, so she puts forth Ruth as the one through whom the dynasty would continue. And maybe this Redeemer thought, wait a minute, she's a Moabitess? This is not good. They are enemies of my people. This is a potential social liability. 
And this closer kinsman redeemer deems that the risks are simply too high to move forward, so he withdraws his commitment. He's not willing to pay this cost, and he's not willing to make this sacrifice, because in his estimation, both were too high. And Boaz, with a heart motivated by love for Ruth and a desire to care for Naomi, eagerly makes that sacrifice, even though by law he wasn't required to. He eagerly makes the sacrifice. And you say, well, how did Boaz feel about it all? Well, verses 7 through 10 really serve in some ways as a press conference that he holds there at the city gate. Listen to what he says. Uh, Listen to what it says beginning in verse 7. Now, this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning the redemption and the exchange of land to confirm any matter. A man removed his sandal and gave it to another, and this was the manner of attestation in Israel. So the closest relative said to to Boaz, buy it for yourself, and he removed his sandal. Listen to the press conference. Then Boaz said to the elders and to all the people, you are witnesses today that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Kilion and Malon. Moreover, I have acquired Ruth the Moabitess, the widow of Malon, to be my wife in order to raise up the name of the deceased on his inheritance so that the name of the deceased will not be cut off from his brothers or from the court of his birthplace. You are witnesses today. The transaction is secure. It's complete. And the author is aware that the original audience probably wouldn't have been aware of the ancient Near East custom of property exchanges. So he tells in details what happens whenever a transaction was made. The one that was selling would give his sandal to the one that purchased as a sign of good faith. No more notaries needed. Just give me the sandal and we'll go about our day. I'm helped by Ian Duguid. His commentary here, I think, is, is spot on. Ian Duguid says, It is doubtful whether a detailed digression into ancient Near Eastern property rights would be very helpful in a sermon. And I agree. It is doubtful whether a detailed digression into ancient Near Eastern property rights would be helpful in a sermon. I agree, and therefore I will not get into ancient Near Eastern property rights this morning in the sermon. But the transaction is done. In verses 9 and 10, Boaz holds a press conference. He's ecstatic. You can feel his joy. This is something more than merely a real estate transaction to Boaz. He understands the privileges and the responsibilities of being a redeemer. Elimelech's name will not be forgotten because of his covenant love, his hased that's on display. And in a moving response, The elders and those that were at the gate, listen to what they say in verses 11 and 12. All the people who were in the court and the elders said, we are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah, both of whom built the house of Israel. 
And may you achieve wealth in Ephrathah and become famous in Bethlehem. Behold, may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, through the offspring which the Lord will give you by this young woman. Their prayer is, it's staggering, really. They look and they pray something about a future glory that would have been unheard of, unthought of in Ruth's mind. Naomi probably wasn't expecting this type of prayer to be offered for this marriage that has just taken place. They pray that God would make Ruth, who was a Moabitess, a people that were enemies of God's people, that God would make Ruth a prominent woman among God's people like the matriarchs, Rachel and Leah. If you were to go back and just study a little bit of Old Testament history, what you would find is that between the both of them, Rachel and Leah, they had 12 sons, which were the 12 tribes of Israel. The witnesses on this day pray something seemingly scandalous. God, would you use a pagan woman to bring about good purposes for your people? And then they prayed something even uh, just as audacious. They prayed that God would open Ruth's womb. And that Boaz would come to have renown throughout Bethlehem. And we can't even fathom a greater prayer. And our jaws will indeed hit the floor once we see how this chapter ends. She has been barren for 10 years. And they pray that God would so open her womb to bring about some that would accomplish, one that would accomplish the good purposes of God for his people. They pray that Boaz's house, verse 12, would be like that of Perez. The the story of Judah and Tamar is a very difficult story. I would encourage you, if you want to read it this week, Genesis chapter 38. Read it. It's a hard story to read. And they prayed that your house would be like the house of Perez, because Perez was the daughter of Tamar. And Tamar, just like Ruth, was a foreigner. She was an outsider. She was not a part of the people of God. And Tamar, like Ruth, married into God's people under a risky situation. And Tamar, like Ruth, lost her husband. And Tamar, like Ruth, pursued a man that they thought could rescue them. And so if you you understand what they're praying, they're not saying Ruth is like Tamar. Tamar was a prostitute. Ruth has been a woman of noble character. They're not saying, Ruth, you're just like Tamar. What they're saying is that would God be so pleased to do to you, Ruth, what he did to Tamar, which was have Perez, which would then continue 
this lineage of how God would be faithful to his promise in Genesis chapter 12 of blessing all the peoples in the earth. So what's being compared in Ruth and Tamar, it's not their character, it's the similarity of their circumstance. It's a prayer that God would do a great work through a less than ideal scenario. Even specifically, that God would continue to carry out the lineage of his people like he did through Tamar, that he would do that through Ruth, a non-Israelite. And in verse 13, literally in one verse, we're going to move from the public wedding ceremony at the gate to nine months later as Ruth gives birth to a son. Verse 13, so Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife and he went into her and the Lord enabled her to conceive and she gave birth to a son. The kindness of God is on full display in verse 13. 10 years of infertility gives way to the birth of a son. And the author doesn't want us to miss it. This isn't owing to Boaz's magical touch. This isn't owing to Ruth's reward for marrying into the right family. No, the author makes it clear in verse 13, and the Lord enabled her to conceive. There are two times in this book where the Lord is, is attributed to, and, and it's seen that he is directly acting in the story. The first one is Ruth chapter 1, verse 6. It says that then she, Naomi, arose with her daughters-in-law and she, that she might return from the land of Moab, for she had heard in the land of Moab that the Lord had visited his people in giving them food. And so the first time that we hear the Lord directed, he, he actively, clearly did something in, in Ruth chapter 1, verse 6. And in the end of this book, Ruth chapter 4, verse 13, we see yet again the Lord actively, he visited this barren womb. And he enabled her to conceive Two times in this book, Lord's direct actions are mentioned. Chapter 1, verse 6. Chapter 4, verse 13. And in between, the whole story that's unfolding, in between, there are no dramatic miracles. There are no burning bushes. There are no angelic proclamations. In fact, all it is, is God's hidden hand at work in every ordinary circumstance in each mundane rhythm of their day. Commentator Daniel Block says, this is the author's modest way of identifying a miracle. She who was unable to conceive for Malon is now able to conceive for Boaz. And here's what's interesting about the ending of Ruth chapter 4 is that Ruth has just had a son. And the attention, it doesn't stay on Ruth. The camera pans to Naomi. 
Huh. The camera draws our attention, the author draws our attention to Naomi. I'm a little surprised, if I'm honest, that the final scene has Naomi at the center. I mean, after all, this isn't the book of Naomi, it's the book of Ruth. After all, this was Ruth's marriage and Ruth's child, not Naomi's. Ruth gets, chapter, uh, Ruth gets verse 13 at the end of chapter 4. Naomi gets verses 14 through 17. Why this focus on Naomi? And then you begin to think, wait a minute. Every chapter thus far in this book has concluded with an update in terms of affecting Naomi. The author is meant to convince Naomi. The author, the author is meant to convince Ruth. The author is meant to convince the original reader. The author is intending to convince you and I of God's steadfast love, his hesed, his covenant loyalty love for Naomi. When Naomi returns back to Bethlehem, Naomi is convinced of God's sovereignty, but she questions his goodness. And each chapter ends with an evidence of God's kindness and grace towards Naomi. The whole book is reminding us that God has not forgotten not a one of his people. He hasn't forgotten Naomi. Naomi misread all of the hardships and the circumstances, and yet the author is reminding us at the end of every chapter, look at Naomi, because I am looking at Naomi. And if you are a follower of Jesus this morning, I want you to know that your story is no different. The book of Ruth is meant to convince you of the kindness of God towards you, especially in the midst of your suffering. You are meant to read this book to then consider your hardships and to realize that God is still at work in your life. He has not forgotten you because the days are hard. He has not forgotten you because you suffer. And God's kindness came to Naomi through Ruth. And God's kindness was displayed to Ruth through Boaz. And if you and I will take the time to trace his kindness, we, we will find that his kindness is flowing to us through others. How often do you trace the kindness of others to, ki to the kindness of God? in your life? I mean, how often do you take the gestures and the generosity and the thoughtfulness and the care of others, how often do you trace that back to God's thoughtfulness and generosity and care for you? Ruth is meant to convince us that both God is indeed sovereign but God is indeed kind and good. 
Look at Naomi's life at the end of each chapter. And maybe even allow that precedent to serve as a good way to end every day of your life. To just recount God's kindness to you before you close your eyes to go to sleep. Even on the worst day, there are reasons to trust and to believe and to hope. Well, the ladies that were present for her bitter outburst in chapter 1 have regathered again in verse 14 of chapter 4. And listen to what they say. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed is the Lord who has not left you without a redeemer today. And may his name become famous in Israel. May he also be to you a restorer of life, a sustainer of your old age, for your daughter-in-law who loves you and is better to you than seven sons has given birth to him. I mean, full circle. Naomi is no longer bitter and empty. She is grateful and full. And these women began by thanking and glorifying God. They offer up even a prayer. Blessed is the Lord who has not left you with the Redeemer today. The priority of prayer is evident all throughout this book. There was, there's not one act We said at the beginning, four acts, each chapter serving as like an act of this short story. There's not one act in which those that are are involved are not engaging in prayer. Every act, we see just the priority of prayer throughout this book. Crying out to God, calling out to God. And they begin this prayer by By blessing God for the gift of this child. This child was her kinsman redeemer. A restorer of her life. A sustainer in her old age. What a contrast. This child restored joy to the soul of Naomi. He will be a sustainer in her old age. He will be a comfort in her old age. It's as if Naomi, we can just hear her begin to sing, it is well with my soul. It is well with my soul. And then these ladies, they give thanks for and they honor Ruth in a massive way. I mean, Ruth has been a compelling example of fierce loyalty and unswerving commitment and love. She's placed the well-being of Naomi ahead of her well-being at every turn. And she would eventually be a means by which Naomi would be saved from destruction and death. What they say to her is what God has given you in your daughter-in-law. If you go back to chapter 1, remember... Naomi shows back up to Bethlehem and she says, I have nothing. And Ruth is standing with her. And what these women say is that what he gave you in Ruth as your daughter-in-law is better than having seven sons. 
Having a son was a, a sign that God was pleased with you. Having seven sons is saying the perfect fulfillment of all of his pleasures that he could give to you. Having Ruth is so much better than that. Naomi, do you understand what he has given you? You may have lost two sons, but you gained a daughter-in-law that exceeded having seven sons. And as I prayed this week, thinking about our church and just going, I'm thankful to, to be a pastor of a church that's filled with ladies who bear resemblance to the covenant loyalty, the steadfast faithfulness of Ruth. Uh, Women, the ways in which you put the needs and the well-being of others ahead of your own has helped create a culture of kindness in our church that I believe reveals the kindness of God. And so thank you for that. In verse 16, Naomi takes the child, laid him in her lap, and became his nurse. She doesn't begin nursing him. She would take care of him. One happy and fulfilled grandmother. A woman who has been acquainted with famine, familiar with grief, and there in her lap is an expression of the kindness of God in the form of a grandson. And what the author knows is that really nothing more needs to be written for you and I to be affected by this moment. I love how John Piper summarizes Ruth chapter 4. This is what he says. The life of the godly is not a straight line to glory, but they do get there. The life of the godly is not an interstate through Nebraska, but it's the state road through the Blue Ridge Mountains of Tennessee. There are rock slides and precipices and dark mists and bears and slippery curves and hairpin turns that make you go backwards in order to go forwards. But all along this hazardous twisted road that doesn't allow you to see very far ahead, there are frequent signs that say the best is yet to come. And at the bottom right corner, written with an unmistakable hand, are the words, As I live, says the Lord. The book of Ruth is one of these signs for you and I to read. It was written, and it's been preached, to give us some early fall encouragement and to hope that in all of the perplexing turns and twists that your life has taken, if you belong to God, they have not taken you to dead-end streets. They haven't. In all the setbacks of your life as a believer, God is plotting for your joy. And both Ruth and Naomi can testify to this. And in my sanctified imagination, if there are lines where we're waiting to talk to, God, to old saints, I imagine that the line will be long to hear this story from Ruth and Naomi. The human story has wrapped up, and I don't know 
of a better ending to this human story. The story of love and redemption and faithfulness all along the way in the ordinary. God is using the most unexpecting people in the most obscure of places, doing, using the hardest of circumstances to bring about his purposes. And just when you think the story is over, just when you think that the screen is about to go black and the credits are begin, going to begin to run and you reach down to get all of your stuff and you stand up to leave the theater, verse 17 continues. The neighbor women give him a name. They were attesting and affirming the name that had been given to him. They didn't get the privilege of naming him. They say a son has been born to Naomi, and so they named him Obed. He is the father of Jesse, the father of David. And with that, the, I don't even know how to pronounce his name, the M. Knight Shemilan, Shemilan, thank you, twist has just happened in this story. The author reveals the significance and the importance of Obed. This grandson who is laying in Naomi's lap is none other than the father of Jesse, who would then be the father of David, Israel's greatest king. And the book ends with this stunning revelation. This ordinary story has just transferred to become extraordinary. Ruth's son is related to, and he preserves the royal line of King David himself. And then we just realize this story isn't over. Because immediately after, a genealogy follows. The hidden story that has been unfolding behind the human story all along begins to be revealed and our breath is about to be taken away. And the genealogy is not optional. We, we don't just close the book because we see a bunch of names, some of which we would struggle to read and to say. We, no, no, this, the, the movie isn't done. No one is to get up at this point. This informs us that this isn't just a love story between Ruth and Boaz restricted to a specific time and a specific place, but rather this is connected to God's saving purposes throughout all times and in all places. The double emphasis there on David is, has lifted this from a local story to a national story. And this has implications far beyond their family and their lifetime. It's anticipating a future that they would not have fathomed. Verse 18, now these are the generations of Perez. To Perez was born Hezron, and to Hezron was born Ram, and to Ram, Amenadab, and to Amenadab was born Nashon, and to Nashon, Salmon, and to Salmon was born Boaz, and to Boaz, Obed, and to Obed was, uh, Obed was born Jesse, and to Jesse, David. And this is the most important part of the book of Ruth. It's why the human story is even compelling because it's tapping into the longing that we all have for the hidden story. This book is a part of the salvation storyline of the Bible from the patriarchs to David. 
And the genealogy is there to serve to remind us and to reveal to us God's ongoing faithfulness to accomplish his purposes over the centuries. Ruth is set in the dark days of the judges. Lawlessness is abounding. Everyone is doing right in their own eyes. And among the people of God, it's abounding. And God yet is at work, even during this time, fulfilling his plans and his purposes. And it's all unfolding in Bethlehem, which is just pregnant with meaning and anticipation. The birth of Obed here is massive, and it has massive massive significance. He is the grandfather of Israel's greatest king. And here's the thing. The author is looking ahead, and as far as he can see, is it just keeps going until you hit David. And we all know how good David has been. That, that's what the author was thinking. We can look and we can see the goodness of this because it led us to David. But by God's grace, our sight is not limited. We can see farther. We're living on this side of the cross and we can see that it gets much, much better than just taking us to David. We hear the prophet Micah prophesy about David's greater son. But as for you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you, one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. Therefore, he will give them up until the time when she who is in labor has borne a child and the remainder of his brethren will return to the sons of Israel and he will arise and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they will remain because at that time he will be great to the ends of the earth. And we just see prophecy after prophecy, Lord raising up people saying, David, by, by God's good grace, David did good, but there is one who's coming back that will do better, that will be best. His rule and reign will have no end. And you begin to think, man, where in the world does that ge- genealogy, I mean, what's that taking us to? And you flip over to the Gospel of Matthew, beginning in verse 2, Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob was the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Perez was the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram was the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon was the father of Boaz by Rahab. Boaz was the father of Obed by Ruth. And you're just going, wait a minute, Tamar and Rahab and Ruth. What in the world, Lord? Why are you using these people that don't belong to be your people? And how in the world are you using these, these unlikely women? And what was, seen, what was deemed to be the worst of times for your people, you're using them to bring about good. The lineage is continuing. And Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse was the father of David the king, and David was the father of Solomon by Bathsheba, who had been the wife of Uriah. You just keep going down and down and down until you get to verse 16. And Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, who, by whom Jesus was born, who is called the Messiah. The only place in the New Testament where, where Ruth's name appears is on this genealogy. 
Ruth's story is culminating when the Son of God himself would descend to the in, in the incarnation in order to redeem the world from its sin by dying on the cross and raising from the dead. And what we began to see is that the one who would come after David, he's the kinsman redeemer that you and I need. Who, like Boaz, he didn't, he didn't have to do this. But kindly, because of his said, paid the price of his people, that their sin might be taken away from them, that they could know redemption. And by delivering the death blow to death itself on the third day to all who would repent and trust in him. Because if you don't, what awaits you is the same thing that awaited the enemies of God ever. I mean, from the beginning. It was, it was the just wrath and the hard justice for sinning against the holy God. And this small baby in the lap of Naomi was used by God to preserve the lineage so that there would be a hope for you and me today. That there would be a redeemer who would pay the sin debt that we couldn't pay and who would then credit our account with all of his righteousness, who would then invite us to know life everlasting because he is the God who rose triumphantly over the grave. God is the redeemer behind the human redeemer of Boaz in this story. And he has sought us while we were utterly lost in our sin. And the invitation of the book of Ruth is that for any and all who have not fled to this kinsman redeemer who died in your place, I just want you to know, if you're not a Christian this morning, you will not find a love like this anywhere else. You will not find a love like this anywhere else. You will not find good like this anywhere else. You will not find a power like this anywhere else. Whatever your lot has been in life, Jesus stands ready to receive you on this day. You will not find a grace like this anywhere else. And so if you're not a Christian, I would plead with you. Throw yourself on the good Redeemer that is Christ. Turn from your sin and believe that he alone can make you right with God. What begins in an obscure village with obscure people traversing the ordinary tragedies of life ends with the providential hand of God working about to bring the supreme grace and kindness of God displayed through the coming of the Messiah who would be the needed redeemer for his people. Huh. What kind of God loves like this? I mean, it's meant to take your breath away. That he would use the most unassuming and undeserving and least expecting to bring about something that would lead to your greatest good. Ruth is just brimming with applications. 
and my sermon doesn't need to brim with them. But I do just want to mention three. Number one, trust the Lord in the dark because you, tr- you believe that he's working all things out. Trust the Lord in the dark because you believe he's working all things out. We don't know what he's doing. I'm so helped by what Tim Keller says here. If you have a God who's great and transcendent enough to be mad at because evil and suffering and hardships happen in your world, then you also have at the same moment a great God who's transcendent and good enough to have reasons for allowing it to continue that you don't know. So if if God is big enough to be over everything for you to be mad at because he's allowing it, he's also big enough and good enough for you to be patient with because maybe he has purposes in that that you don't know. He's always at work. He's always on the clock. Number two, wait on the Lord in your suffering because you know that he is good. Wait on the Lord in your suffering because you know that he is good. Naomi had lost everything. And yet we are benefiting some 3,000 years later from this story. The fiery furnace of suffering was necessary for the larger hidden story to begin to unfold. We want things to happen in a hurry, and they don't. Abraham was 75 when he started his journey. He waited 25 years for God's promised child. Joseph spent most of his 20s in prison. Israel spent 430 years in Egypt. Moses spent 40 years in the desert. Judges spanned 200 to 300 years. The period between the Old Testament and the arrival of Jesus was about 400 years. Elizabeth spent her whole life barren until she was pregnant with John the Baptist. Paul spent years in prison preaching the gospel. God tends to work in years and decades and centuries rather than minutes and days and weeks. Your waiting is not wasted because he is at work. And then third, give your life to ordinary faithfulness. Give your life to ordinary faithfulness. Ruth and Boaz and Naomi are just going about their life seeking to be faithful. And the Lord honors that and he uses that. And so if you're thinking, man, my life is boring because I'm not doing a lot and it's just kind of clock in and clock out and I go home and it's kind of regular routines, I want you to know that excitement in life doesn't happen by changing ventures all the time. It happens by being faithful in the mundane and knowing and believing that God will use the faithfulness in the mundane to do greater things than you can ever ask or imagine. And you may go to your grave never seeing the fruitfulness of it, but you can go to your grave believing that if you are faithful, he will honor that. He will. Your life matters not because it's exciting. Your life matters because your identity is in Christ. And if your identity is in Christ, then he is working all things out for your good and for his glory. Be faithful. Be faithful. God moves in mysterious ways. His wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. You fearful saints, fresh courage take. 
the clouds you so much dread are big with mercy and shall break and blessings on your head. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his work in vain. God is his own interpreter, and he will make it plain. Let's pray.